This is The Guardian. Today, 70 years on the throne, the Queen's enduring popularity, despite a turbulent period for the royal family. What shall we say of that greatest of all royal events, the coronation? For this is a matter for the heart as much as for the head, and the calculations of policy give way to a spontaneous outpouring of fervent emotion. Queen Elizabeth II is the longest reigning monarch in British history. Her Platinum Jubilee has gifted the nation an extra bank holiday, and street parties are kicking off around the country. It's the kind of week when the country will be eating lots of cake. 12 million people are expected to hold street parties at some point over the long weekend. To celebrate 70 years on the throne, it's a huge moment. This is the sort of apogee of the Queen's reign. Tina Brown is the former editor of Tatler, Vanity Fair and The New Yorker. And she has recently published The Palace Papers, a book zooming in on the royal family. For someone who's been a royal watcher for decades, this weekend celebrations are especially poignant. There is a sense, I think, that the monarchy is the great connecting thread to the nation's identity and its history. This institution embraces our past and our present and our future in a way that's enormously unifying, particularly at a time of huge volatility, of huge tragedy of depression. Everything has been so difficult in the last few years. It's a massive moment. And the fact is, is that each time these things happen, all the kind of naysayers are proved wrong. And this time, particularly because everybody knows it's the last jubilee of Queen Elizabeth II. This is the last one. And so in that sense, it's, it's a pretty epic national moment. Despite the Queen maintaining a popular public image, the last few decades have presented her with a number of royal crises that have shaken the monarchy to its core. From the life and death of Princess Diana to the most recent shaming of Prince Andrew. And as she presides over the inordinate pomp and ceremony on show for her today, there are questions about whether the monarchy could enjoy the same level of public support and ride out royal scandal without her. From The Guardian, I'm Noshi Iqbal. Today in Focus, what can the House of Windsor learn from the royal standard set by the Queen? Tina, your book, The Palace Papers, which is incredibly compelling and like can't put it down, which is a mean <laughs> fee, over 800 pages. It begins with a chapter called Never Again. The royals confront a post-Diana world. Why did you decide to start the story there and why that title? Well, the Never Again was the mantra around Buckingham Palace in the immediate years after Diana's death. And that mantra, Never Again, was what the Queen would say. She meant we cannot ever again have someone in this family 
who develops their own power base, their own satellite celebrity, essentially. She's just beautiful, and she's in this great outfit. And she walked by, and we're like, the princess is coming, the princess is coming. She glows. She has charisma. Now I understand why she has so many fans. That actually isn't about the structure of monarchy and being what every member of the royal family is, except for the sovereign, which is, frankly, scaffolding, on which the sovereign depends. Diana was an amazing presence in the royal family. For 16 years, she executed all of her duties with extraordinary diligence as well as humanity. But her popularity became so outsized, it essentially dwarfed everybody else and capsized the ship. Even when the Queen opened Parliament, the, the press, instead of being the picture of the Queen on the front page, it was about Diana's new updo when she had her hair up. You know, it was very aggravating. <laughs> Nobody likes being outshone. Well, yes, Dermot, the Press Association uh, announced with a news flash at 4.41, that's just a few minutes ago, that Diana, Princess of Wales, has died. According and just to how much had their reputation been tarnished by her death and the subsequent fallout? Very much. You know, the years after Diana died were the least sort of popular period in the modern royal family as we know them. And, you know, there was that very difficult passage where Basically, the public were baying for her to come down from Balmoral and the, the flag on top of Buckingham Palace. I think it must be very, very cold-hearted not to have a flag up. I think it's a disgrace on the whole royal family. Good afternoon, everybody. We interrupt your regular programming as the Queen prepares to make what is a very unusual public television statement. It was the one time, really, in her entire 70 years that the Queen didn't get it right. At the end of several days, during which there's been tremendous pressure on the royal family to make a more public appearance than they have. Because she was being required to show emotion. Since last Sunday's dreadful news, we have seen throughout Britain and around the world an overwhelming expression of sadness at Diana's death. She was being required to sort of connect with her people in ways that she has never really been required to do before. We have all been trying in our different ways to cope. It is not easy to express a sense of loss. It was one of those awful occasions when the duties of the crown collided with the tragedy of the family. So what I say to you now, as your queen and as a grandmother, I say from my heart, It's not long after Diana's death when, in 2001, her eldest son, William, meets his future wife and our future queen, Kate Middleton. They got married some 10 years later and we all got an extra bank holiday to celebrate. But aside from that, how important was their union in helping to rebuild the public image of the royals post-Princess Diana? Well, the Cambridge Union was a massively important building block in reinventing the monarchy post-Diana because... We had Diana's son, who was beloved by the people. A tall 15-year-old with a demure smile and his mother's looks is the very latest teenage heartthrob. Welcome to Will Mainly. I can't love you, I love you, oh my God. And he took my hand, oh my God. I'm never washing my hand ever again. The handsome heartthrob, young prince, and this beautiful woman. Kate Middleton is a kind of girl that you would love your son to marry. Who was a commoner. She grew up middle class, her father a pilot, her mother a flight attendant. Her but who had 
won his heart at university and really showed through 10 years of kind of waiting and waiting and waiting that she was fully trained to become a member of the family. It made me a stronger person. You find out things about yourself that maybe you hadn't realized. I think you can get quite consumed by a relationship when you're younger and you know, I, I really valued that time, although I didn't think it at the time. It's bad. <laughs> and, you know, at the time people made fun and said, oh, weighty Katie, what is she waiting around for? But I think in retrospect, everybody can see that actually William was very, very smart and very judicious, as was she, in not rushing it because he was well aware from obviously his life with his mother, all the horrific sort of press scrutiny and the strictures of the role that, you know, can they do it? Can they put up with this? Are they going to do this for life? Kate bought into it. And she has. Newly married couple stepping for the first time onto this famous balcony as husband and wife. And as such, has made herself absolutely indispensable to the future of the House of Windsor. It was also during this time that we see the rehabilitation of Camilla Parker Bowles and she is merging as an official member of the family after decades of being the other woman in Charles's life and in the newspapers, which obviously culminates in their marriage in 2005. And there she is in a, a long dress, a posy, the Prince of Wales, beaming quite broadly. How significant was it to rebuild her image in that way, both for the royals themselves and with their relationship with the public? Well, it was really critical, frankly, because Charles, he wanted to be with Camilla from the moment, really, that he got involved with her. So for him, it was a non-negotiable thing to have Camilla at his side. But for decades, she just wasn't accepted, neither by the public nor by the Queen. The Queen kept on, really, wanting Camilla to be edited out of this story. And it was really only when she kind of finally understood that if she said to Charles, it's Camilla or it's the Crown he would very likely have chosen Camilla. It would have been the abdication all over again. December the 10th, 1936, one of the most momentous days in the history of England. On this day, the decision of King Edward VIII was awaited with anxiety throughout the empire. And at 3.45, the Prime Minister delivered this message. After long and anxious consideration, I have determined to renounce the throne. And she could not risk that. So she said, okay, you know, I give in. Essentially, that was the best thing that could possibly happen because he's now an unapologetically happy man, far less of a kind of gloomy Eeyore figure that he was and which the public didn't warm to. She has really transformed his life. And actually, she's been a remarkable success in this last 20 years. In a message tonight ahead of Accession Day tomorrow, the Queen renewed the pledge she made in 1947 that my life will always be devoted to your service. But she then added unexpectedly, when in the fullness of time my son Charles becomes king, it is my sincere wish that Camilla will be known as Queen Consort. What the Queen did was the most brilliant piece of estate planning, essentially. I mean, she was taking that controversy off Charles's plate for when he became king, which was a huge thing. I mean, I don't know whether it was seen as seismic as it was. The issue of what Camilla would be called dates back to the time of her marriage to Prince Charles. Back then, of course, Queen Camilla was out of the question. And that whole post-Diana period, those sort of building blocks of stability that you've talked about, is also defined by a truce of sorts with the media who came under huge criticism for their perceived role in Diana's death. This is not a time for recriminations, but for sadness. However, I would say that I always believed the press would kill her in the end. 
not least, of course, from her brother Earl Spencer. It would appear that every proprietor and editor of every publication that has paid for intrusive and exploitative photographs of her has blood on his hands today. Tina, how did things change? What was the basic deal made between the press and the family following Dinah's death that helped shape the coverage they got? Well, there's no doubt that the media was chastened, you know, after the death of Diana. The media knew that Diana had been hounded, had been tormented, and ultimately was chased to her death in a tunnel. And there was a great feeling of protectiveness about those boys. So the best thing that happened, essentially, was the pact with the media that told them hands off. So right the way through their education, the boys were not really harassed by the media. But once they were out of that age, the media harassment began with a vengeance, particularly towards Harry. And even as an adolescent, when he wasn't supposed to be, you know, in any kind of line of fire, you know, he was thrown under the bus in awful ways. Harry and Chelsea Davy, his, his girlfriend, were just mystified why their text messages about their arrangements, all of a sudden it was leading to exposure, etc. And then realizing, of course, it was because they'd been hacked. It was a, a terrible episode in, in Harry's life, which essentially has fueled all this bitterness that we see surfacing constantly in his attitude to the press. Everyone has a right to their privacy, and a lot of the members of the public get it. But in, sadly, in some areas, there is this, this sort of incessant need to find out every little bit of detail about what goes on behind the scenes. You've been the editor of Society Bible Tatler very early in your career. You've written books about the royals. You've attended events, mingling with them. What has your experience been of the royal press machine? How much royal reporting do you think can actually be accurate? Well, I mean, I, I did know Diana and had uh, a lunch with her without press people being there. There was a huge amount of manipulation, let's face it. I mean, the, the palace press machines absolutely spin and have their own uh, version of things which, you know, journalists have to simply probe beyond. So, you know, it's it's one of those difficult relationships that, you know, will go on being both antagonistic and kind of copathetic. I mean, the royals need the coverage. Otherwise, they're a tree that falls in the forest. And they're very competitive about getting the coverage, too. It's not like they don't care. They care tremendously. How has the press operation evolved since those Diana days? Well, I think the press machine is much more sophisticated than it used to be, you know, in the in the 80s and 90s. They have now got much more kind of worldly, accomplished press people at the palace coming out of the realms of politics. It's run now much more like a kind of sophisticated global press operation, such as might accompany a prime minister or a head of a, a major organization. So, I, I mean, you know, there is a big change there. It does seem like the Queen managed to stabilise the public image of the royal family in those decades following Diana's death. But of course, in the last few years, we've just seen them thrown completely back into turmoil. You were staying at the house of yes. a convicted sex offender. It was a convenient place to stay. And I, I admit fully that, 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 that my judgement was probably coloured by my... Um, tendency to be too honourable. First with Prince Andrew and then with Harry and Meghan's exit. It's such a monumental decision to have walked away from the royal family. You know, it was a really difficult environment, as I think a lot of people saw. We all know what the British press can be like. 
and it was destroying my mental health. I was really? like, this is toxic. Yeah. So I did what any husband and what any father would do is like, I need to get my family out of here. How do you think the Queen handled these major crises? Well, the great difference between these crises and the ones, say, in the 90s is that the Queen then was much younger and much more in good health. The great difference in these last dramas has been, you know, they've happened at the time when the Queen is at the end of her reign. And of course, you know, with Prince Philip, you know, leaving us. And I think that you've seen, frankly, in the Queen's handling of it, the lack of Philip being there as her kind of steadfast counsellor and the lack of, of some of her former private secretaries who were actually very strong. I mean, someone like Sir Christopher Geit, who was for 10 years her private secretary, was a very, very smart cookie when it came to negotiating difficult, warring kind of situations in between the various offices and the children, essentially. And his departure, I think, sort of weakened the Queen. And of course, you know, she's actually had two major problems with Andrew and Harry and Meghan, where her kind of feelings as a mother and grandmother were in absolute opposition, essentially, to what was required to be done for the Crown. She's had to essentially cancel her own son in the case of Andrew. Buckingham Palace has announced that Prince Andrew is returning his royal and military titles to the Queen and will no longer be referred to as His Royal Highness in any official capacity. Absolutely shameful end of his public life. And yet, as we saw at Philip's memorial, and we now learn in the upcoming uh, garter ceremony, Andrew's going to be back. So it actually shows that the Queen, really perhaps at the end of her life, is saying, OK, I understand he has to be cancelled, except he's my son and I'm going to bring him. That, I think, is something that she might not have done in previous years. I think that she would have been talked out of that. But I would say with Andrew, you see the Achilles heel more because I think she's now 96. In the case of Harry, I think the Queen has shown herself to be very, very firm. I mean, I was told that, you know, in that last big sort of summit at Sandringham, this was the Queen's show and she was running it. This was the Queen as chair of the monarchy. And and I was, you know, one of her, her team said to me, you know, that the family knows the drill. Are they going to see and have tea with mummy, granny, or are they going to see the monarch? And she made the decisions to give Harry nothing that he wanted. <laughs> I mean, it was no, 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 all the way down the line. And I'm sure it gave her absolutely no pleasure at all. But at the same time, she also believed there was no other solution uh, that would work and protect the crown. So we have in tandem the conversation of he won't be given security, he's not going to be given a title, and also concerns and conversations about how dark his skin might be when he's born. What? About how dark your baby is going to be? Potentially, and what that would mean or look like. Ooh. Well, the palace did push back hard once Meghan and Harry said that they'd experienced racism within the institution. Do you think it prompted any kind of reckoning or soul-searching from the Queen or within the family? I have no doubt that there has been a lot of discussion and desire to make sure that that charge can never be levelled again. The fact is there was only 8% diversity at the palace. Meghan was right to feel that, you know, there was nobody like her in any way at the palace. She was very much alone and there was a lack of understanding of how that sense of being alone could make somebody feel under the sort of misogynist, racist glare of the tabloid press. And 
that I think they all know was their mistake. Well, it seems that part of the solution to all of these swirling scandals seems to have been a move towards a smaller, slimmed-down royal family. What is that starting to look like and who is driving it? Well, it's looking a bit skeletal <laughs> because they weren't supposed to be losing Andrew or Harry. So, you know, a bit of a problem slimmed-down monarchy at the moment. I think there's a great effort to try to make everybody focus on, you know, the heir, Charles, and William and Kate. But there's a lot of pressure on that. I think it's excessive pressure, really, on the Cambridges at the moment to be essentially, you know, taking up the slack for both Harry and Andrew. And I do think at a certain point they're going to need Harry back, particularly probably after the Queen dies, because he was an asset. Coming up, how will 70 years of Queen Elizabeth II be succeeded? Tina, aside from this weekend, we've been seeing much less of the Queen in public. Has her role been quietly changing too? Is the handover to Charles already underway? Yes, I mean, I think you're seeing more and more Charles is taking over. To the UK now, as today is the opening of the British Parliament. But Queen Elizabeth is not at today's big event. This marks the first time she has missed the opening since 1963. My lords, pray be seated. Instead, Prince Charles presided over the event in the last Indeed, hour. Uh, this was the most significant of his mother's roles that Prince Charles has actually fulfilled. That's right, so this far. was a Queen's speech without the Queen. There, there's a real sense that this reign is now in its last phase and the preparations are advancing full speed ahead. We're in the transition. Would you expect the transition to King Charles to be relatively smooth, given that we saw, for instance, how badly William and Kate's Caribbean tour went earlier this year, which seems a pretty ominous sign, doesn't it? Well, I think there's going to have to be a huge amount of rethinking. The Commonwealth is topic A, I think, for them to be dealing with because... It felt really archaic. It felt really retro, that tour. Recreating some iconic images of royal visits past might be a perfect way to mark a tour, which is celebrating the Queen's Platinum Jubilee. Prince William joined Kate in the back of a Land Rover that his grandparents had used before. But it has also served as a vivid reminder of Britain's colonial past. And it showed essentially how the world has turned so fast in the last four years that all of a sudden the things they were doing, that doesn't really work anymore because every country is having a reckoning with racial history. Every country is rethinking their place in the world. Several dozen turned up this morning demanding an apology from Britain for its role in the slave trade. And some say the gains William's own ancestors made personally from slavery. Prince William... I hope you feel ashamed in some sense. I hope you feel remorse. I hope you feel, how could my ancestors do this to these people's ancestors? And I think myself that by the time William becomes king, I do not think that the last 14 sovereign realms will be sovereign realms anymore. I think that once the queen goes, I think there will be a swift transition out of that situation. Well, if there is a Republican moment starting to happen around the Commonwealth, do you think it could reach the UK? Well, there's no real appetite to get rid of the monarchy in the UK. I think largely because it is such an emblem of Britishness. 
it is such a kind of link to Britain's history that, okay, so you take away the monarchy and you have what, like President Boris Johnson? Nobody, I think, really wants to see that happen much. Unless, and this is a big unless, you know, the occupants of Buckingham Palace behave badly. If Prince Andrew was about to be king, I don't think it would say, you know, I don't think for one second it would survive. I really don't. So in that sense, that is a change. I don't think that the monarch gets to be there, whatever the comportment and whatever the behavior. And that's the pressure really on the Cambridges is that they know they're going to have to be perfect, just like the Queen was perfect for 70 years. the country is set to celebrate her remarkable longevity this coming weekend. Tina, from all you've learned about her, what do you think has been the secret of maintaining that incredible popularity that she still enjoys? Her authenticity. You know, the Queen has never, for one minute of her life, ever pretended to be something that she isn't. She doesn't have to ask herself, is this right for my brand? (laughs) She never has to ask herself that question. You know, she's such a strongly centred person her sense of duty, her sense of commitment, her sense of, of, of realness. And that I think we all see in the Queen. We see that about the Queen. We know she's never pulled the wool over our eyes about anything. She is who she is. And you know, her family life has given her great contentment. So although it's given her a lot of problems, you know, there's also been uh, a sense that the Queen has lived the life that she actually wants to lead. And I think that gives you a sanity that others may not share. Well, she has also quite literally been born into it, hasn't she? I mean, she's been groomed for this her entire life. She may never have had to ask, is it good for my brand? Because she's been a brand since the day she was born. And I wonder, in your book, in which you've cited 120 sources, in all your research and all the speaking that you did to people, what did you learn about her that surprised you the most? Well, she she really does have a wonderful sense of humour, which I love about her. She actually is a really witty, salty not salty so much as just a stringent sense of humour that I think has sort of powers her through, actually. I was told that when they were planning the Golden Jubilee and one of her team thought, wouldn't it be nice if the Queen did something relatable, like go on the London Eye? And the Queen looked at him and said, I am not a tourist. (laughs) (laughs) My other favourite one is though one that you quote when Tony Blair was making all these plans with her about the Jubilee, the Royal Jubilee, and she had to remind him and say my jubilee (laughs) exactly i mean it's very dry it's very droll it's slightly maggie smith in downton abbey i mean there is a real sense of humor there and um i think without it you know she sort of couldn't continue tina do you think her success is transferable do you think she's set a sustainable model that charles and beyond can follow No, I don't. I think it has to be a different kind of monarchy. And I think what the Queen has always been is a representational monarch. We don't know what she thinks about anything. 70 years, she's never given an interview. I mean, she came to be herself in an era when the media had deference. That has changed. I mean, we already know so much about Charles. (laughs) We know what his opinion is on really most things. So he can't be that mystique sort of representational monarch that the Queen is. But I think it could be something else which I think will be interesting, which will be a sort of the great convener monarch. He will be Charles the convener. Uh, He will use his role to bring together people to discuss the things that he feels is really important for the country. But I think there is really a sense with Charles a little bit now that he was misjudged for many, many years, you know, that his particular passions of the environment, organic farming. I mean, these were all really, really, really prescient things that he cared Mm. about long before anybody else did. 
And that, I think, has given him a kind of stature, actually. He, he'll be able to, I think, play a really big role in, in the whole climate change conversation. And I think he will use that power to convene. Finally, Tina, how will you be marking this weekend? What street party <laughs> might, might we find you at? Well, you won't. You'll find me at the Hay Festival, actually. <laughs> but I think it's going to be the most wonderful weekend. And I hope the Queen's well enough to appear. And I hope that everybody does give her thanks that she deserves for being there for her country. And this is the time to people to express it because it is the last Jubilee. Tina, thank you so much. Thank you. That was Tina Brown. Her book, The Palace Papers, Inside the House of Windsor, The Truth and the Turmoil, is published by Century and it is out now. That's it for today. This episode is produced by Rose DeLorabiti and Hannah Moore. Sound design was by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producers are Phil Maynard and Elizabeth Cassin. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.